ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد سترين حديث جابر بن عبد الله رضي الله عنهما قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم اعطيت خمسا لم يعطهن احد من الانبياء قبلي بمسنجر الله صلى الله عليه وسلم said I have been given five things that no prophet was given before me I have been given five things that no prophet was given before me nusirtu birrub masirata shahr that the enemies of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam when they were within a month traveling distance from the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam imagine still a month traveling distance away from the distance of a month away from the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam fear would strike their hearts from a distance of a month of traveling away then they would be upon fear the enemies of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam imagine from that far away a month traveling in those days traveling on your donkeys on your horses you're still a month away from that destination yet the fear would already strike the hearts of the enemies of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam even from that far distance allah said in the quran sanulqi fi qulub alladhina kafaru ar-ru'b bima ashraku billah ma lam yunazzil bihi sultana that indeed we will cast fear into the hearts of those who have disbelieved because of the shirk they have committed alongside Allah upon that which Allah gave no proof for upon that which Allah did not reveal any proof meaning shirk they committed shirk they were disbelievers So Allah says sanulqi fi qulub alladhina kafaru ar-ru'b we will throw cast fear into the hearts of those who have disbelieved and similarly the opposite is true for the believers wa alqa fi qulub al-mu'minina min al-quwwa wath-thabat was-sakina wat-tuma'nina ma huwa a'dham asbab an-nasr as for the believers allah places into their hearts strength and establishment and peace tranquility 
the believers find those affairs in their heart, whereas the disbelievers, the kuffar, the mushrikun, they find fear in their hearts for the shirk that they are upon. فَاللَّهُ تَعَالَى وَعَدَ نَبِيَّنَا وَأُمَّتَهُ بِالنَّصْرِ الْعَظِيمِ Allah has promised the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and this ummah with a great victory. وَأَنْ يُعِينَهُمْ بِأَسْبَابٍ أَرْشَدَهُمْ إِلَيْهَا And that Allah will aid them via the means that Allah has prescribed for us. There are various means that Allah has prescribed to the Muslims if the Muslims were to practice those means, then it would be something that brings about victory and strength for them. Like being upon unity together and strength. So we've been given various types of guidelines as to how the Muslim Ummah should be upon preparation, upon patience, upon unity. If the Muslim Ummah was to implement what we've been taught, then certainly the disbelievers would be in fear. And that's why some of the scholars, they used to say, the kuffar, what is the biggest thing they fear <clears throat> from the Muslims? It is not, it is not, if you have nuclear weapons and you have this artillery and that artillery and the tanks and the guns, that isn't the main thing. Sheikh Muqbil, rahimahullah, and others used to say, the biggest thing the kuffar fear from you that causes fear into their hearts from you, the believers, is this tawheed that you are upon and they do not have. This tawheed, this iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the believers, the mu'minun have in their hearts, that is a source of strength that outweighs anything the kuffar would have. So here one of the specific characteristics that the Prophet ﷺ was given is that from a distance of a month away, the enemy's fear would start striking into their hearts. وَجُعِلَتْ لِيَ الْأَرْضُ كُلُّهَا مَسْجِدًا وَطَهُورًا فَأَيُّمَا رَجُلٍ مِنْ أُمَّةِ أَدْرَكَتْهُ الصَّلَاةِ فَلْيُصَلِّ the second point mentioned in this hadith from the five things that have been made specifically for the Prophet ﷺ that no other Prophet had before him. First was the fear of the fear going into the hearts of the enemies from such a distance that never used to occur to the enemies of the previous Prophets. Secondly, now he says, ﷺ, that all of the earth all of the ground has been made as a masjid for me and pure. All of the ground, all of the earth 
has been made as a masjid, a place to pray in, and pure. So whomsoever, the Prophet ﷺ goes on to say, whomsoever finds that the time of the prayer has come upon him, whomsoever from my ummah finds that the time of the prayer has come upon him, then pray wherever you might be. You're out in the woods somewhere, the time of the prayer is in and it's about to go, pray in the middle of the woods on the ground, it's pure. You're out on the service station traveling, that's the place where you have to stop, there's no room to pray, out on the car park, pray. The whole of the ground and the earth, the Prophet ﷺ says, has been made as a masjid and pure, so you can pray out on the ground, on the field, on the grass, on the beach, on the stones, all of it is made pure for the Prophet ﷺ and this ummah. And of course, there are certain exceptions to that. There are certain few exceptions to that ruling. The overall ruling is all of the earth, the whole of the ground, beach, soil, sand, field, cement, anywhere you can pray, out on the fields, anywhere. But there are a few exceptions of places on the earth that you cannot pray in. فَجَمِيعَ بِقَاعِ الْأَرْضِ مَسْجِدِ يُصَلَّى فِيهَا مِنْ غَيْرِ اسْتِثْنَاءِ إِلَّا مَا نَصَّ الشَّارِعَ عَلَى الْمَنْعِ مِنْهُ وَقَدْ ثَبَتَ النَّهِ عَنِ الصَّلَاءِ فِي الْمَقْبَرَةِ One of the places is the graveyards. So it is not permissible to go and pray in a graveyard. You do not go and pray a dhuhr prayer in the graveyard. You're there, dhuhr comes in, so you say, let me pray my dhuhr here in the middle of the graveyard. No. Asar, Maghrib, any of the prayers, you don't pray them in the graveyard. The only exception to that rule is, there is one prayer you can pray in the graveyard. And that is the janazah. That is allowed. It is allowed to pray the janazah in the actual graveyard where you've buried the person. That is allowed. But besides that, your prayers, Fajr, Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib, Isha, other prayers, they are not prayed in the graveyards. The toilet areas, the toilets, toilet cubicles, toilet rooms, bathrooms, to pray in those rooms or those areas is also prohibited. To pray in the areas where the people defecate, where the people relieve themselves, those areas, you don't pray in those. That is also mentioned in the texts as impermissible. وَأَعْطَانَ الْإِبِلْ And what do you call them where the, where the uh, camels are kept overnight? Stables? Camel pens? It is a pen, not a stable? Whatever it is, the pen or the stable, whatever the actual mustalah is for the camels, where the camels are kept overnight. Huh? Desert. They are in the desert, that's correct. But then they have like a shed where they stay at night. Sometimes the farmers put them inside of that shed. Sometimes they are known as pens. Sometimes known as, uh, what did we say as well? 
the stables, these kinds of woods. Those places where the camels are kept overnight sometimes, those sheds, those stables, those pens, it is not permissible to pray inside of them. The camels one. Sheep one, other ones, no problem. The hadith mentions the camel ones. In particular, the camel ones only. Why is that? Why is the camel one mentioned? The devil? So the scholars, they say, perhaps one of the reasonings as to why camels are specified is because of the nature of camels. The nature of camels as a species of animals is that they are tempered. They are hot-headed. That is the nature of camels. They are an emotional type of animal. And those who know camels know this about them. Also, due to that same type of reasoning, some of the scholars say it is mentioned that if you eat camel meat, it breaks your wudu. Some of the scholars hold that opinion. There are some narrations about it. That if you eat camel meat, it breaks your wudu. You have to make wudu again afterwards. For the same type of reasoning. So because of their nature, because of the, the heat, the hot type of nature of camels, uh, it is mentioned that a person does not pray in that area because you may be impacted. The, the impact of that area and the nature of the camels may impact upon you. Some of the scholars mention that as a possible reasoning. So that is also mentioned as an exception. And also generally, what other general area is it not permissible to pray on? Not a specific place now, a general area. Which general areas are not allowed to be prayed in, obviously? Where there's a cross. Multi-faith prayer rooms. Multi-faith prayer rooms where they have the cross and they have the statues and things like that. Then of course you cannot pray in a room that has statues and idols and crosses and those types of things. And not just that, maybe an idol of the Buddha and this and that and all types of things. You cannot pray in a room like that. Multi-faith, but you're not allowed to pray in a room like that with those symbols around. In that case, you pray elsewhere. But generally... Ah, uh, impurity. Any place that has impurity is out of the ruling. Any place that has impurity, then obviously you can't pray in it. Even if it was in the mosque. If one area of the mosque, some impurity fell on it, you can't pray in it until it's wiped clean, washed clean. So the same outside... All of it is pure, but if there was some impurity down on a particular area, then you can't quote this hadith and say, all of the earth is pure, I'm going to pray on the impurity. Then of course, the area of impurity is exempt. It's outside of the purity area you can pray in. So, that is another type of thing that has been made as something specific to the Prophet ﷺ, which did not exist for the previous prophets and messengers. The whole of the earth being a place of worship for you, being a place of prayer for you. And that's why you see the mistake of some of the people. They don't see 
this ruling and they don't understand this ruling. So you're out somewhere, like something which might happen, you're traveling somewhere and you stop at a service station, it's time for the prayer uh, and the prayer time's about to go out, you need to pray. So you stop on a service station. Inside the service station, they can't provide you any area, any rooms. So you're forced to go and pray in the car park outside, no problem. But some people, it is as if they think, unless you put down something, some mat, some your jacket, something, you can't pray on the tarmac or the actual floor of the car park. They say, how? All these cars driving across their wheels, where have their wheels been? Maybe their wheels went through some dirt. All this, how can you just pray on the ground straight away? You got to put down some mat, you got to put down some coat. Do something, Get check the boot, find something. That's how they are. And the reality is there is no need for that. There is no need for that. Your prayer is absolutely valid on that tarmac on the ground. You check it, there is no impurity in sight. You pray. That is allowable and that is correct. It is actually exaggeration. It is exaggeration for you to claim we need to find some mat, let's be safe, etc. No. You go to a field, the same thing. You're out camping. You're out camping and the time for their prayer comes. Move out of your tent on the side and pray on the grass. But again, some of them will say, but wait. On the grass straight away, maybe this animal was here, maybe there was some dung there, maybe this, maybe that. You need to put something down. Again, no. Check the ground, you don't see anything there. You can't smell anything, see anything, it's all normal grass. Then pray on it and it's completely allowed. Hmm. Basically, the presumption is, is pure unless you see something. Absolutely. Unless you can see some impurity, the hadith tells you the earth by default is pure. These people are making the opposite. It's as if they are saying, we're going to assume the possibility of it being impure. So let's get the mats out and everything just in case it's impure. That's twisted. The reality of the religion is, it tells you what is assumed is that the earth is all pure. If you can see some impurity or something else indicating to you about its impurity, then fair enough. Don't pray there, move elsewhere. But otherwise, the default assumption is not that what if it's impure, what if this and what if that. The default is that field, that car park, that street, they are pure. If you see something to the contrary, then okay. If you don't, the default is they are pure and you can pray. The shoes is another issue, we'll come to it, huh? Praying with a room that has pictures in it, the prayer is accepted. It wouldn't invalidate your prayer to pray somewhere where there are pictures. However, as the other rulings of the religion, they indicate a place with pictures, the angels don't come to that area, and there's the obvious prohibitions of pictures. So there's other rulings linked to the issue of pictures. But praying in a room with pictures, it wouldn't invalidate the prayer itself. So here, this is the uh, second thing that is mentioned, that all of the earth was made as pure for the Prophet ﷺ. The third thing, وَأُحِلَّتْ لِي الْغَنَائِمْ وَلَمْ تَحِلْ 
awalam tahalli ahadin qablihi that the war booty the war booty was made permissible for me uhillat li alghanaim that the war booty was made permissible for me walam tahalla li ahadin qablihi but it was not something that was prescribed or made permissible for those before him. So this issue of the war booty, collecting the war booty after the battles, that was something of a ruling made uh, for the Prophet wasallam and this ummah, and it was not something which existed prior to that. The fourth thing, أُعْطِيتُ الشَّفَاعَةِ That I have been given the intercession. وَهِيَ الشَّفَاعَةُ الْعُظْمَى أَلَّتِي يَعْتَظِرُ عَنْهَا كِبَارَ الرُّسُلِ وَيَنْتَدِبْ لَهَا خَاتِمُهُ مُحَمَّسَ أَسَلَّمْ فَيُشَفِّعُهُ اللَّهُ فِي الْخَلْقِ وَيَحْصُلُ لَهُ الْمَقَامَ الْمَحْمُودِ الَّذِي يَحْمَدُهُ فِيهِ الْأَوَّلُونَ وَالْآخَرُونَ وَأَهْلُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ The intercession that occurs on the day of judgment. The major intercession as it is known as. When the resurrection occurs and the people are raised up from their graves, after that, obviously, it is a terrifying state. When the people are resurrected, it is a terrifying state. People are afraid and scared and terrified. And it's difficult and the sun is close to the earth and the people are sweating and everything. So then in the hadith it mentions, when all of that is happening, the people they say to each other, they say, look, look, أَمَا تَرَوْنَ مَا نَحْنُ فِيهِ Can you not see this calamity we're in? Find someone who will intercede for us. They say, find someone who will make shafa'a for us. We will ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for us to remove us and get us out of this. So then they go to the prophets and the messengers. They go to a whole list of them. Ulul Azam in particular, Nuh and Ibrahim and Musa and Isa alayhi salam. But all of those prophets excuse themselves and they are unable to make this intercession until they are finally directed to go to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he is the only one who can go and goes to make that intercession on that day. So that intercession is something specifically given to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and no other prophets and messengers were able, will be able to do it. The same you could say, when at the end of the day of judgment, when everything has occurred, and the people who are now going to enter paradise, arrive at the gates of paradise. When they arrive at the gates of paradise, they find that the gates are closed. So again in the narration it mentions, they go to the various prophets and messengers. All of those prophets and messengers again excuse themselves, cannot do that until finally they come to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he is the one who then makes the intercession for the gates of paradise to be opened. So the fourth thing mentioned is, that 
the specific intercession that Prophet ﷺ will be able to do on the Day of Judgment that no one else can do, not even the other Prophets and Messengers. The fifth thing that the Prophet ﷺ was given specifically, particularly that nobody else was given, no other Prophet was given, he said, وَكَانَ النَّبِيُّ وَبُعِثْتُ إِلَى النَّاسِ كَأَعَامَّةِ That normally prophets and messengers were sent to their particular people. A prophet was often sent to his people. A messenger sent to his people. Whereas the prophet ﷺ was not sent to a particular group or nation of people. The Prophet ﷺ was sent as a messenger for all of mankind. And that is something which did not occur in the previous Prophets and messengers. They used to be sent to their regions, to their people, to their uh, nations. Whereas the Prophet ﷺ was sent to everyone. وَذَلِكَ لِكَمَالِ شَرِيعَتِهِ وَعُمُومِهَا وَسَيْعَتِهَا and that is because of the perfection of this final sharia. Perfection of it, that it is applicable to everyone in every place. And it is encompassing in general to everyone in every place. وَاشْتِمَالِهَا عَلَى الصَّلَاحِ الْمُطْلَقِ And because this sharia has the absolute rectification and goodness in it for all people in all places. This sharia... The rulings of it are good and beneficial and for rectification of all people in all places. It is applicable everywhere, meaning. And that this sharia, it is applicable and suitable for every time and every place. 1400 years ago it was applicable, today it is applicable. To the day of judgment, when Isa alayhi salam comes back, he will rule by this sharia, it will be applicable then. Applicable to the day of judgment. So that is the fifth thing that the Prophet ﷺ was given in particular, uh, that he was sent to all of the people, whereas the previous prophets were sent to their people only. So what are the five things that the Prophet ﷺ was given in particular? The first one was, that the enemy's fear strikes their hearts from a distance of a month away from him. And that did not occur to the previous ones. Secondly, the whole of the earth, with those exceptions, but the whole of the earth otherwise, is a place of prayer, a masjid, and pure. And that was not something of a ruling for the previous prophets and messengers. Thirdly, the war booty. Fourthly, the intercessions on the Day of Judgment that are specific. There are certain other intercessions on the Day of Judgment that are general. Other people can do them too. But there's a couple, two or three, that are specific to the Prophet ﷺ. The major intercession, that one being one of them. And fifthly, that he was sent to all of mankind, whereas the previous Prophets and Messengers were sent to their people, their nations only. The purpose of this hadith is what? The purpose of the hadith is what?
What we're studying right now, this book, what is the purpose of that hadith we've just gone through? Which section of the book are we in now? Fiqh, of purification of prayer. This hadith has got five things in it. One is the key for us. The issue about the whole of the earth being a place of prayer and pure. That is why the shaykh has mentioned the hadith here. When you read the books of hadith, Sahih al-Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, Sunan Abu Dawud, Tirmidhi, etc. You read the books of hadith, and you go into particular chapters, you go to a particular chapter, the chapter of purification, the chapter of prayer, etc. And you find various ahadith under those chapter headings. It is a skill and a type of knowledge to be able to work out why a particular hadith has been mentioned in a particular chapter. Here, this one is obvious. We're talking about prayer. It's obvious the hadith, the reason why the author put it there is for that second point about all of the earth being a place to pray on. Direct connection, easy. Sometimes it's not that easy. You go into Bukhari and other places, you see a chapter heading, and then you see a hadith and you think to yourself, how is this hadith in any way linked to the chapter that we're reading into right now? What is the connection between this particular chapter we're in and this hadith? That's why they say the fiqh of Imam al-Bukhari is something very strong. How he derives a point from a hadith You may read the hadith a hundred times, you would have never thought that this hadith can be a proof for X, Y, and Z. Because it isn't obvious. But when you look into it and the explanation of it, you realize there is something in this hadith that can be used as an explanation for X, Y, and Z over there. But normally, normally you could read that hadith a hundred times and you would not make the connection between that and this issue over here. However, many times in the books of hadith and the scholars, you'll find that they put certain hadith in certain chapters, and when you examine it and you see the reason why, when the penny drops, as they say, then you realize how clever they were. How clever they were, the muhaddithun, and how they put these hadith together. Then, the hadith which comes next, hadith of Abu Hurairah, radiyallahu anhu qal, أوصاني خليلي صلى الله عليه وسلم بثلاث أبو هريرة رضي الله عنه says my beloved one meaning the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم he advised me with three things that's a very important opening to this hadith because if Abu هريرة رضي الله عنه was being advised With these three things, they must be three very important things. And this advice to him came from the Prophet ﷺ. So if Abu Huraira was given this advice, a great companion getting this advice from the Prophet ﷺ, then we should pay special attention to what this advice was and make sure we take this advice just as Abu Huraira took that advice. So what is this advice that the Prophet ﷺ gave to Abu Huraira? Three things he gave him. Number one, Sayyam 
ثلاثة أيام من كل شهر to fast three days of every month every month to fast three days of every month with the exception of Ramadan there you've got to do the full month you do three days there you'll have a lot to make up and be in problems Ramadan all of it but the rest of the year three days at least from every month middle of the month is a sunnah again that's another sunnah but three days anywhere as long as you do three days of every month which is the general narration then you have that reward the white days as they are known as the middle of the month when the moon is at its fullest now when you go outside if you see it tonight it's a full moon we are in that middle of the month we're in the middle of Sha'ban. in the middle 13th 14th 15th it is sunnah to fast those days when the moon is full tonight if you see it it will be full so here the hadith just says three days and if a person was to do that, if you were to fast three days of every month, then it is as though you have fasted the whole of the year. How so? How does that maths work out? Because every good deed you do, it is multiplied by ten rewards. So if you fast one day, it is as though you have the reward 10 times over, 10 days. You fast 3 days, it is as though you have the reward for fasting 30 days. So you do that 3 days every month, it is as though you have the reward of the whole month. And therefore you do that every month, 3 days every month, at the end of the year, it is as though you have the reward of the whole of the year. Hence it is mentioned, uh, the additional reward that this brings and this sharia the rulings of the religion are built upon ease not to bring difficulty to you but to bring ease for you so now you have three days the month is 30 days the sunnah is telling you at least fast three days out of those 30 days as a percentage, that is 10%. 10% of the month. Three days out of 30. That is all the sunnah is saying here in this narration to get this huge reward as though you have fasted the whole of the month. Three days. That is the first thing. And that is because of the great virtue of fasting. The scholars and the righteous people all of the great imams of the past, when you read their biographies, all of them used to fast plenty outside of Ramadan. They used to fast many days throughout the year outside of Ramadan. Three days a month, they would go far more than three days every month. That's just a minimum mentioned in this hadith, get this much reward. They would do even more than that. More than just three days a month. So they, the righteous, the great imams, it is their habit to fast regularly, to do regular days every month, because they know of the great virtues of fasting. 
and the great rewards of fasting, and how fasting, it helps you to become stronger, and breaks down your desire, and your need to go after the worldly affairs, breaks all of that down and gives you more strength and patience. That is known from fasting. Helps you to achieve taqwa, as it mentions in the Qur'an, لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ So because of all of those great virtues, it is mentioned that the salihun, they used to fast a lot. And to our time now, the great scholars, this is a habit. But now the people, the habit is the opposite. 30 days of Ramadan, and then 11 months of nothing. That is the habit of the people now, and it's not a good habit. A person should make some effort to fast for the rest of the year. When Ramadan finishes, fasting does not finish. Taraweeh does not finish. For the rest of the year, you can carry on fasting and do taraweeh. Taraweeh for the rest of the year, privately though. In your homes, you do it yourself. Or you come to the mosque, if it's open, you pray. For the rest of the year, you can pray taraweeh after Isha prayer. Nobody is stopping you from doing that. It is sunnah to do that, especially in the last third of the night. Tahajjud as it is known as, that is taraweeh. Fasting for the rest of the year. All of these are great virtuous acts. They do not stop when Ramadan stops. People are mistaken in thinking Ramadan is the month of fasting and praying and taraweeh. And the other 11 months, no taraweeh, no fasting. Incorrect. That is a great mistake. So the first thing Abu Huraira was advised with was this issue of fasting. Fast outside of Ramadan too. Three days of every month. And you have the great reward as though it is the whole year. The second advice. The two raka'at of the duha prayer. فَإِنَّهُ قَدْ تَكَاثَرَتِ الْأَحَادِيثِ الصَّحِيحَةِ فِي فَضْلِهَا And there are many narrations that tell us about the duha prayer. What is this duha prayer? When it is prayed, when is it prayed? After Fajr, after sunrise, before noon, so in the early morning time. The early morning time. The duha, the two raka'at prayed in the morning time. وَاخْتَلَفَ الْعُلَمَا فِي اسْتِحْبَابِ مُدَاوَمَتِهَا أو So the scholars, they had some difference regarding its ruling and uh, consistency upon it. But what is understood and known with certainty is that a person, if he prays these two raka'at of duha, that's the minimum, it can be more than that. But two raka'at of duha after the sun has raised up and it's not immediately after the sun comes up, you wait a while. You wait a small while for the sun to come up somewhat, slightly come up, then you can start praying the duha prayer. The third advice, وَأَنْ أُوتِرَ قَبْلَ أَنْ أَنَامُ and that I should pray the witter prayer before going to sleep. The witter prayer is a sunnah, mu'akkada. Mu'akkada meaning it is a stressed, emphasized, high level sunnah. That you really should do it. You should not be missing this type of sunnah. A sunnah that is known as sunnah mu'akkada. 
a stressed, emphasized, high-level sunnah. Witr is one of those. And so the Prophet ﷺ advised Abu Hurairah, pray your witr before you go to sleep. Pray your witr before you go to sleep. أَمَّا الْوِتَرْ فَإِنَّهُ سُنَّ مُؤَكَّدَةٌ حَثَّ عَلَيْهِ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وسلم وَدَاوَمَ عَلَيْهِ حَضَرًا وَصَفَرًا The Prophet ﷺ used to pray the witr all the time. Even when he was traveling on a journey at night after Isha, he would pray witr. Even when on a journey. Normally on a journey you can combine and you can shorten and you can miss the, the nawafil and the sunan. But the witr, even when traveling the Prophet ﷺ used to pray witr. And the minimum amount of raka'at you can pray for witr is one. One raka'ah can count as witr. And you can pray three, and you can pray five, and you can pray seven, you can pray nine, and you can pray eleven. And there are different ways of praying that. That witr, there are different ways of praying it. Uh, in terms of how the salam is given, when the salam is given. Sometimes it is possible when you pray seven, nine, multiple raka'at, you can carry on, just keep standing up, keep standing up, until right at the end on your last one, sit down and give the salam. There are methods of praying that witr. What is the time for the witr prayer? When is witr to be prayed? So after Isha before Fajr, waqtul witr min salatil Isha il akhira ila tulu' il Fajr wal afdal akhir al layl liman tami'a an yakuma akhira wa illa awtara awwalahu kama fi hadha al hadith. The best time to pray witr is before sleeping or in the last third of the night, if you expect to get up and pray your tahajjud, your night prayer, you expect to get up and pray, then leave your witr till then after the tahajjud, pray your witr. If you don't expect to get up, then after Isha, pray it and go to sleep. So the witr is something very much emphasized. Al Imam Ahmad said, a person who never prays witr, then his testimony cannot be accepted. He comes along and he says, I'm a witness to X, Y, and Z. You say, you can't be admitted as a witness to this incident. You don't even pray your witter prayer. Get out. A man who doesn't even pray his witter, Imam Ahmad was basically saying it's a disgrace. You don't pray witter, what a disgrace. Your witness, your witnessing, your testimony, un- un- unadmissible. Unadmissible, inadmissible. Your testimony will not be taken go. You are a man who abandons the witr prayer. So witr is something important and a person should not forget. So here, uh, Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu was given these three pieces of advice uh, to fast three days of every month and to pray the duha prayer and to pray the witr prayer before sleep. Then we move on to the next narration, which is also Abu Hurairah. Radiallahu anhu qal, Qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Inna ad-deena yusr, Walan yushadda ad-deen ahadun illa ghalabah, Fasaddidu wa qaribu wa abshiru, 
وَاسْتَعِينُوا بِالْغُدْوَةِ وَالْرَوْحَ وَشَيْءٍ مِّنَ الدُّلْجَةِ مُتَّفَقٌ عَلَيْهِ وَفِي لَفْضٍ وَالْقَصْدِ الْقَصْدِ تَبْلُغُ In this narration now, at the beginning of it, it mentions that the Prophet ﷺ said, إِنَّ الدِّينَ يُسْرِ Indeed, this religion is easy. It is facilitated. It has ease in it. This religion is not a religion of difficulty. It is easy in the aqidah, in your manners, in your actions, in what you do, in what you have to abandon. All the affairs are made easy for you in that affair. فَإِنَّ عَقَائِدَهُ أَلَّتِي تَرْجِعُ إِلَى الْإِيمَانِ بِاللَّهِ وَمَلَائِكَتِهِ وَكُتُبِهِ وَرُسُولِهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَالْقَدَرِ خَيْرِهِ وَشَرِّهِ هِيَ الْعَقَائِدَ الصَّحِيحَةِ أَلَّتِي تَطْمَئِنُّ لَهَا الْقُلُوبِ The correct aqidah for the one who learns it and understands it, you will find that your heart is at ease with it. Your heart is at ease with the correct aqidah. They come and tell you a false aqidah, your heart will not be at ease with it. They come and tell you the correct aqidah is as they claim, that Allah is everywhere. Everywhere, literally they say. Here, now Allah is here, they say. Allah is everywhere. You cannot be content with an aqidah like that. That Allah is here now, here. You cannot be content with an aqidah like that. But when you learn the correct aqidah, that Allah is above us, not mixed in with us, above us, above all of the creation, not mixed in with the creation in any way, separate and above all of the creation, being high and above, your Lord being high and above, that is what brings ease and comfort to your heart, without a doubt, rather than the belief that Allah is mixed in with the creation, mixed in with everyone, that cannot be the aqidah that your heart finds content with, so the correct aqidah when you learn it in regards to Allah, the angels, the books, the prophets, the day of judgment, the decree, that correct aqidah when you learn it, you will find that your heart is settled with it. It, ha- it is at ease with it. And also, the affairs of the religion as a whole, they are something which are easy. The prayer, for example. The prayer, it is repeated five times during the day. Five times that are spread out during the day. Each prayer, it does not take a huge amount of time for you. However, the great benefits those prayers bring you, they are huge in protecting you from evil, in strengthening you, in being connected to Allah regularly throughout the day. The zakat as well, when you look at the zakat, it does not require you to give 50% of your wealth or 80% of your wealth away. It does not even require you to give the best of your wealth away. It requires you to give a small, small proportion of your wealth away from the huge amount that you have. Couple of percent, 2.5% of your wealth. That is all from all of the wealth you have. Again, ease, ease upon you. It is not a ruling that you have to give away 50% of your wealth every year, 80% of your wealth every year. Small, small percentage from that huge amount that you have. 
And even that small percentage that you give, it does not decrease your wealth, it purifies your wealth. Zakat means purification and increase. It increases and purifies your wealth. It does not decrease and take away from your wealth. So ease again. Fasting. Fasting ease again. It is not a ruling that you must fast. Even the, what we just mentioned, it is not obligatory to fast three days of every month. No obligation. If somebody didn't fast for 11 months, they wouldn't be a sinner. They've missed all of the great reward of the sunnah they could have got, but they're not a sinner. One month out of the 12, that is ease again. It is ease. Only one month out of the 12th is an obligation. All the rest of the month, sunnah. Do them to get the reward. But even if you don't, you won't be sinning. Again, that is ease. And hajj, the same. Hajj has been obligated in a manner of ease. If you are a person who is, for example, physically disabled, unable to travel, unable to travel, unable to do the hajj, not even in a wheelchair, then is it obligatory upon you? Not even obligatory upon you then. Ease in the worship, ease in the ibadah, in the religion. So, the beginning of this hadith, it says, Inna Indeed, this religion, it brings about ease. It is ease in this religion. And then, the rest of the hadith, it goes on to mention how a person should behave with regards to it. It goes on to mention, uh, It goes on to mention, ثُمَّ إِذَا نَظَرَ الْعَبْدُ إِلَى الْأَعْمَالِ الْمُوَظَّفَ عَلَى الْعِبَادِ فِي الْيَوْمِ وَاللَّيْلَ الْمُتَنَوَّعَةِ مِنْ فَرْضٍ وَنَفَلْ وَصَلَاةٍ وَصَيَامٍ وَصَدَقَةٍ وَغَيْرِهَا وَأَرَادَ أَنْ يَقْتَدِيَ فِيهَا بِأَكْمَلِ الْخَلْقِ وَإِمَامِهِمْ مُحَمَّدٍ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ رَأَى ذَلِكَ غَيْرَ شَاقٍ عَلَيْهِ وَلَا مَانِعَ لَهُ عَنْ مَصَالِحِ الدُّنْيَا بَلْ يَتَمَكَّنُ مَعَهُ مِنْ أَدَاءِ الْحُقُوقِ كُلِّهَا حق الله وحق النفس وحق الأهل والأصحاب وحق كل من له حق على الإنسان برفق وسهولة وأما من شدد على نفسه فلم يكتفي بما اكتفى به النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم ولا بما علمه للأمة وأرشدهم إليه بل غلا أو أو وأو غلا في العبادات If however a person attempts to go beyond the legislations, attempts to go beyond what has been prescribed, then that individual will be overcome. You will be overwhelmed. It is actually stated in the religion that you should not exaggerate beyond what is prescribed. You do not go beyond what is prescribed. Like there is the narration about a man who came and said, I am going to fast every single day of the year. Is that prescribed to do that? No. Another one said, I will never marry. Purely focus on worship. Is that prescribed? No. Another one in one of the versions said, I will never eat meat. Be upon absolute zuhud and focus. Is that prescribed? No. These types of things are not prescribed. Another one said, I will pray the whole night. Tahajjud every night, the whole night. No sleep. 
not prescribed like that. A person who tries to do that in an exaggerated way, then he will be overcome and overwhelmed. So you do not attempt to do that. And it also mentions then, فَسَدِّدُوا وَقَارِبُوا وَأَبْشِرُوا That make the affair uh, easy, make it something which is uh, easily acceptable and, uh, and implemented, something which can be implemented, acceptable, something which can be done, and do not make things difficult upon people. يَسِّرُوا وَلَا تُعَسِّرُوا وَبَشِّرُوا وَلَا تُنَفِّرُوا as the hadith mentions, make things easy, don't make them difficult, and bring glad tidings to people, don't make them run away. So this religion is ease. Yes, there are obligations, that doesn't mean we say, the religion is ease, you can't get up for fajr, miss that one, just pray the other four. That's not the meaning of the hadith, the religion is ease. There are obligations you have to fulfill. But then overall, the manner of these obligations and the rest of the religion, it doesn't bring difficulty on you. Doesn't wear you out. Doesn't tire you out that you can't do anything else. Ease. Ease in the worship and the ibadah. وَاسْتَعِينُوا بِالْغُدْوَةِ وَالْرَوْحَةِ وَشَيْءٍ مِنَ الدُّلَجَةِ And this, in this final part, tells you to benefit from three particular times. هَذِهِ الْأَوْقَاتِ الثَّلَاثَةَ كَمَا أَنَّهَا السَّبَبَ الْوَحِيدِ لِقَطْعِ الْمَسَافَاتِ الْقَرِيبَةِ وَالْبَعِيدَ فِي الْأَسْفَارِ الْحِصِّيَّةِ مَعَ الرَّاحَةِ الْمُصَافِرِ وَرَاحَةِ رَاحِلَتِهِ وَوُصُولِهِ بِرَاحَةِ وَصُهُولَةِ فَهِيَ السَّبَبَ الْوَحِيدِ لِقَطْعِ السَّفَرَ الْأُخْرَوِي وَسُلُوكَ الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ وَالصَّيْرِ إِلَى اللَّهِ سَيْرًا جَمِيلًا فمتى أخذ العامل نفسه شغلها بالخير والعمال صالحة المناسبة لوقته أول نهاره وآخر نهاره وشيء من ليله وخصوصا آخر الليل حصل له من الخير ونعم. Here now in this hadith in the last part it gives you some beneficial times. Beneficial times where you can increase and improve on your worship and benefit from them. The early morning, and this is something which the scholars always advise with, the early morning after Fajr. The early morning after Fajr is a time that is blessed, a time that is missed by so many of the people. That early morning time is mentioned in this hadith as a time for you to benefit from. Similarly, it also mentions the evening time. Later on, towards the end of the day, don't finish off your day in a bad way. Finish off your day with something of benefit also. Begin your day early with benefit, finish it in the evening with benefit. And then also, the night. The night is a time of benefit too. The last third of the night especially. The last third of the night, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descends to the lowest heaven, then that is a time for you to make dua. It is a time for you to seek forgiveness. And it is a time when the dua is particularly answered. So there are times that you can focus on uh, to benefit from and overall that a person strives with this worship and strives with this religion because it is ease. It is not something difficult upon you. Five prayers a day barely takes an hour of your time. Fifteen minutes for each prayer, just over an hour of your time from your 24 hours. Fifteen minutes for each prayer ends up at 75 minutes out of your 24 hours. 
You cannot spare that one hour or so from 24 hours for prayer. You cannot do that, then what a terrible state a person is in. The religion brings you ease. But a person becomes lazy even with that ease being provided to him. Shaitan whispers that it is difficult when it is ease. Look now, the Fajr prayer, a person may think it's difficult. Early, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, it's difficult. However, it's just the Fajr prayer. Has it been made obligatory that you have to get up and pray tahajjud? If it was obligatory, fard, you have to get up and pray tahajjud. So then you got to get up at 3 a.m. and start praying and then fajr and finally finish at 5 a.m. Then you might start saying it's difficult. Now, all that is obligatory is just the fajr. Tahajjud as a sunnah if you want to get up. So when you look at things in reality, it's not difficult. In reality, it's not difficult. But a person looks at things in the wrong way and expects them or anticipates them, perceives them as being difficult. How much do we have left now? 20 minutes yet? MashaAllah. The next hadith in that case, عن أبي هريرة رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم حق المسلم على المسلم ست Important hadith to round off with today. The rights of a Muslim upon another Muslim are six things. The rights of a Muslim upon another Muslim are six. قيل, it was said to the Prophet ﷺ, وَمَا هُنَّ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ What are they, O Messenger of Allah? What are these six rights of a Muslim upon a Muslim? قال, the Prophet ﷺ said, إِذَا لَقِيتَهُ فَسَلِّمْ عَلَيْهِ Number one, if he or if you meet him, then give him salam. <coughs> Giving the salam is a right of a Muslim upon a Muslim. To give the salam. Initiating the salam is not an obligation, but returning the salam is an obligation. Somebody gives you the salam, you got to return the salam. You initiating the salam, it wouldn't be a sin if you didn't do it. It's not an obligation. But of course, it mentions here as the rights of the Muslims one to another. You give salam one to another. And it mentions in the other narration, giving that salam brings about love between the Muslims, between the believers giving salam one to another. And it's not a good thing that a person abandons the salam one to another. You see each other and you don't give salam to one another. That is not a good thing. The right of a Muslim one to another is to have that goodness to give salam to one another. It mentions in the other narration about the method or the mannerisms of giving the salam. Where it states, يُسَلِّمُ الصغير على الكبير The young one should give salam to the old one. Walmar al-jalis. And the one who's walking by to give salam to the one sitting. Walqalil al-kathir. And the few in number should give salam to the large ones in number. 
So if there's a big group of brothers sitting down and a couple of people walk in, it's the right of the big bunch for the two to come and give salam to them. The fewer to give salam to the large. So these things are mentioned. So one of the rights here is the salam. Depending on the size, if there are multiple people, multiple people in response, one of them can reply for the group. But the ones coming and giving the salam, it's not an obligation in the first place. So if some of them did it, it would be acceptable. But it would be good and preferred that all of them give the salam. A few of them walk in, all of them give the salam upon this group. From the group, it is possible. If some of them reply, it suffices the group. But the ones entering, they are the one giving the salam, so they, it is better all of them do it. But if only some of them did it, it would be acceptable. So here it mentions about the salam. In the other ahadith, it mentions, وَالَّذِي نَفْسِ بِيَدِهِ لَا تَدْخُلُ الْجَنَّةِ حَتَّى تُؤْمِنُوا The Prophet ﷺ said in another hadith, by the one whom my soul is in his hand, you will not enter paradise until you have iman. وَلَا تُؤْمِنُوا حَتَّى تَحَابُوا And you will not have this iman until you love one another. أَفَلَا أَدُلُّكُمْ عَلَى شَيْءٍ إِذَا فَعَلْتُمُهُ تَحَابَبْتُمْ Shall I not show you something? If you do it, you'll build this love one to another. بينكم, spread the salam amongst yourselves. So this is from the good things from, from Islam. From the good affairs of Islam that spreads the love and the unity and the goodness between the Muslims that they give the salam to one another. To the one that you know and the one that you do not know. In this country it is different. But you go to the Muslim countries where everybody is walking around with is Muslim. Salam to everybody. Salam to the one you see walking on the street. Salam to the one you see here, there, wherever. Salam to the people whether you know them or not. So it is done in that way. Salam to the people, to the Muslims. Salam to the Muslims. And that being spread one to another is a right of the Muslims one to another. Secondly, the second right. إِذَا دَعَاكَ فَأَجِبْهُ If a Muslim invites you, then accept his invitation. He invites you, دَعَاكَ لِدَعَوَ الطَّعَامِ وَشَرَابِ فَاجْبُرْ فَاجْبُرْ خَاطِرَ أَخِيكَ الَّذِي أَدْلَى إِلَيْكَ وَأَكْرَمَكَ بِالدَّعْوَةِ So then if somebody invites you, show him good mannerisms and don't make him feel down by rejecting and saying, no, I'm not coming. That would make him feel down. He's made an invite, he's prepared food, he's invited you in particular, shortlisted you for the invite. And then you say, no, I'm not going to come, it will maybe give him some dejection. So make that good for him and accept the invite. So accepting the invite of the one who invites you, uh, one who gives you an invite, then this is also from the rights. Of course, of course, if a person was unable for some reason, then it's not an obligation. It's not something you would be sinful for. Somebody invites you and you say, but I'm working that night, I have a shift. So nothing you can do. You excuse yourself and you are excused and there is no sin upon you. The purpose of the narration generally is, if you have no reason not to go, and you get invited and your brother invites you, then be good to him and accept his invitation and go. If you don't really have any valid or legitimate reason, 
Then you shouldn't just not go because you can't be bothered. I don't want to go to his invite. He invites you, your brother invites you, then go. This is from the goodness of the character of the Muslim one to another. And that is again something which builds the love, builds the unity between the Muslims. No, this is general. Generally, walima, the scholars mention, is even more emphasized. Somebody invites you to a walima, then really you should not miss unless you have some emergency thing. A walima, you should really make the effort to go. Even more so. This is general. Generally, somebody invites you, try and go. Because that is from the goodness. In terms of it being a, a high level right, then walima the scholars mention. Then of course the walimas which have music and those things, you're not obliged to go. There are always these exceptions. If it is haram going on, haram going on at that walima, and you're not able to stop that haram, then it is not obligatory upon you to go. And it's not, you can't say, that person can't say to you, it's the right of a Muslim upon a Muslim you need to attend. You tell him, but there's all this haram going on in your walima. You're going to have music and this and that. I can't come. The religion prohibits me from going to this haram type of event. But generally, generally, a good walima, if somebody invites you, really you should make a good, big effort to attend a walima invite. If something is genuinely preventing you, then so be it. But otherwise, make an effort. Generally for the other invites, again, it is from the goodness and from the character of a Muslim you accept. Generally. Even generally somebody invites you, if you don't have any reason to uh, refuse, then you should try and go and make that goodness between one another. Number three, The third right a Muslim has upon you, if he seeks your advice, then advise him sincerely and properly. A Muslim comes to you and he says, I'm in a predicament, I got this issue going on, I want your advice on it. Listen carefully and give him the good and just advice regarding his situation. Don't, as they say in the street language, fob him off. A Muslim comes to you, your, fr- your brother comes to you, your friend comes to you, asking you sincerely, I'm stuck on this or that, I want your advice. Can you advise me? I know you know about these things a little bit. You got some experience about these things. What's your sincere advice to me? Then listen and focus and give him sincere advice. To help his situation, to help his whatever situation he's in. That is a right he has upon you. He's coming to ask you for sincere advice, then give him sincere advice. And that is in the hadith, Ad-Dinu Al-Nasihah. This religion, it is that purity. So give purity of advice one to another when you are sought for advice one from another. Number four. إِذَا عَطَصَ فَحَمِدَ اللَّهِ فَشَمِّتْهُ A person sneezes and says, Alhamdulillah, then you should say, يَرْحَمُكَ اللَّهِ This is from the rights of a Muslim upon his brother. Somebody sneezes and they say, Alhamdulillah, then you reply and say, يَرْحَمُكَ اللَّهِ That is from the rights which are mentioned. And then if somebody says, Yarhamukallah to you, you can reply and say, Yahdikumullah wa yuslih balakum. Number five, Ida marida fa'udhu. A Muslim becomes ill, then visit him. 
That is the rights between the Muslims also. One of the brothers, one of the sisters, from the sisters, then they go visit that sister, from the brothers, a brother, then go and visit that brother. You know somebody has become ill, he's stuck in his home, he's ill, or he's stuck in the hospital, he's ill. Then go and visit your brother, bring some happiness to him, he'll be happy to receive the guests, happy to see his brothers, they've thought about him and they've gone to him, and they've taken him maybe something of a small gift, some chocolates or whatever. It is something good. That is from the good mannerisms and the good character. To visit the one who is ill is from the rights mentioned. And it's something which is stressed as a righteous action. A righteous action that you make this effort to go and visit. The ones who you know somebody has become ill from your community. Don't just abandon him and leave him. Go and visit him. So that is from the rights and the goodness of the character of a Muslim also. And number six, وَإِذَا مَا تَفَأَتْبِعْهُ If a Muslim dies, then follow him. What does that mean? The janazah. One of your community dies, then attend the janazah, and pray the janazah, and follow all the way to the graveyard and do the burial. This is from the rights of the Muslims one upon another. Somebody dies, come and pray the janazah. Don't just say it's not a big deal, I don't have to go. Make time, come, attend. One of your community has passed away, one of the brothers, one of the sisters. Come and pray the janazah. And then go to the grave and do the burial. Because in the hadith, in another narration it mentions, if you come and pray the janazah, you get one reward. One qirat. If you then after the janazah go with the burial all the way to the graveyard and bury, that is then two qirat. Two rewards. And some of the scholars they mention the qirat is the size of a mountain of reward. So there is a great reward to do that and that is something clear. Just as you would love that if you died the community would come and pray upon you and take you to your burial. And not that the community would abandon you and no one is there. Then you similarly for your brothers, for the sisters, then in your community you serve this right one to another that you come and establish that janazah and you take them to the graveyard, and you bury them, and you make dua for them. All of this from the rights of the Muslim one to another. So those six rights are what? The first right mentioned is? Giving the salam to one another. Number two? Accepting an invitation. Number three? Advising the one who seeks your advice. Number four? The one who sneezes to reply to him, Yarhamukallah, number five. Hmm? Visiting the sick and number six. Following the janazah of the one who passes away. So that's where we'll round off today. Hadith number, what was it? 28? 29? So remember then next time, inshallah, hadith number 30. Some questions have come here. Would you say performing Umrah or Hajj or such acts are a means of um, are a means of anyone are a means of 
Increasing Iman. Increasing Iman. Are a means of increasing Iman and and expiating sins. So would you say performing Umrah or Hajj or such acts are a means of increasing Iman, expiating those sins? Does this have to be done on on something income? Or can the woman pay for on the man's income? Or can the woman pay for this? The first part is clear. Are these types of uh, actions, Umrah and Hajj, are they a means of increasing Iman? Everybody can answer that question. Of course, absolutely. And everybody who's been to Hajj will tell you that. If you go and perform Hajj, you know when they have that phrase, there is nothing like it. Absolutely. When you go and perform Hajj, it is something completely different. So no doubt this is a great means of increasing the Iman, and no doubt it is a great means of expiating the sins. No doubt both of those for the first part of the question. Secondly, can the woman pay for herself? Is that allowed, or does the man have to pay? Absolutely, the men are very quick to say, she can pay. If she has the money, she can pay. So it is allowed if the woman has money herself. Say for example now the husband, husband has saved up, he's been saving up, saving up, and then he comes and breaks the news to his wife one day, you know I've saved up 4,000, but only 4,000, so I'm going to have to go myself this year to do hajj. She says, that's okay, I've got four grand as well, you know, in the account. So I'll come with you. No problem, she can pay for it. And she has the money, she has the conditions, she has the mahram. So you can both go, that is allowed. It's not a condition for the husband to have to pay. Same for zakat, every year people ask, the woman on her gold, how does she pay the zakat? Sometimes questions come in, a woman has gold, that's all she has. She doesn't even have a bank account, any cash, money, husband takes care of everything, but she does have 5,000 pounds of gold. So how does she pay zakat? Husband can pay it on her behalf, it's possible. They can work out the weight of the gold, the 5,000 pounds worth of gold, work out the percentage, whatever that amount is, the husband can pay it for her, can be done. If the husband says, with all due respect, it's your gold, then yes, the woman needs to pay it. If she has no money, husband pays for everything, takes care of everything, her expenditure gives her uh, spending money, whatever. He has all the money, takes care of everything. She doesn't deal with physical cash or bank accounts. But she's got this 5,000 pounds of jewelry. Now zakat is due on it. How is she going to give it? Husband, uh, no, husband says, uh, it's your gold, sort it out. Fair enough, it's possible she's got a sort it out, but how then? She doesn't have any money. Scholars say, just take one small earring out or something. Uh, yeah, absolutely. If, if she is stuck in a situation like that, then take small, a small piece out, equivalent or roughly equivalent to the amount which is due, sell it and give the money or just give that piece. So you're giving the equivalent amount.
just a few more quick questions left here. One says, in masjid, after the salah, people give salam continuously whilst you're doing your adhkar. After the prayer you finish, people are sitting around after the prayer, everybody getting up, leaving, coming, giving you salam all the time, is disturbing you every five seconds in your adhkar. So should you keep on interrupting to answer the salam? In that instance, the adhkar is not something that prohibits you or prevents you from giving the salam. So yes, you give the salam to those who are coming and giving you salam. Even if you're in the middle of the adhkar. You give the salam to the ones who are coming to give you the salam and you carry on with your adhkar. There is no time limit on your adhkar. You carry on doing it and you have these breaks in between, then so be it. They are coming and giving you salam, you reply to it. There are certain things the scholars mention about giving salam in the first place. Sometimes it's better not to give salam. Generally. Like for example, a class is going on like this. A class is going on like this. Somebody walks in now. Some of the scholars, they say, it is preferred for him not to give salam. Just come praise it down. <coughs> Why? Because if everybody coming in now starts giving salam and we're doing this lesson and talking, then every few minutes there's a disturbance. Assalamu alaikum wa alaikum salam And we're in the middle of this class. <coughs> so the scholars say, in that type of scenario... Walk in, pray, sit down, don't give an open salam to everybody and then people start replying and then there's a disturbance in the middle of the lesson. For example, you're in prayer in the jama'ah. The prayer congregation is going on. Somebody walks in late, it's often heard. Somebody walks in late, assalamu alaikum, and then they come and join the congregation and it's allowed. You can reply by making the sign. However, some scholars say, it's preferred not to give the salam in the first place in that scenario. You walk in, the jama'ah is going on. Just come in, join and pray. Why give the salam in that situation and disturb everybody in the prayer? If you do it, it's allowed and they can reply with a movement of the hand. But some scholars say, avoid it in the first place. It's a prayer, let everybody focus instead of you giving the salam and then everybody's attention going to you and replying, etc. They also say in the wudu area. They say everybody's making wudu. They say, don't disturb people. Everybody's focusing on their wudu. You go in and give salam. Somebody gives salam back. How are you doing everything? Now he's forgotten where he was. <laughs> Miskeen. So they say that type of situation, everybody, everybody in the wudu area is busy in worship. They're all doing their wudu. They say, don't disturb them. In that situation, just go in, do your wudu, give your salams afterwards. So certain scenarios, there's about 10 or 12 of them, they say, it's better just leave it if you can. Leave it till after that. So maybe... A person who's giving the salam should take this into consideration. They see somebody straight after the prayer, they can see the person's doing the adhkar, then that person should maybe give some consideration and allow a moment or two until the adhkar are done and then go to the person and give the salam. That, if possible, would be something good. You can give the salam and continue. Give the salam and continue. That's the same with the recitation of the Qur'an. You're reading the Qur'an, just wherever you are, stop at the end of the ayah, or wherever you arrive at, give the salam and carry on. Another one says, uh, we'll just do this quickly, if one works early hours, or is in fear that, might miss the witr if it's left till later on, especially children, can they read witr with isha, even if you don't go to sleep? Yes, it's allowed, but 
uh, it's better, it is better like it mentions to leave it till you're gonna go to sleep. Because all of these reasons, you might fear, you fear that you might miss it if it's left. At some point you're gonna go to sleep. And all it takes is five minutes before you go to sleep. But if there is some fear, children, these things, then yes, it is allowed to pray it straight after Isha. It is allowed. That's permissible. If witr is a sunnah, even a mu'akkada, then why is it not fard? The fard prayers, no, this is a discussion the scholars mention in the books of fiqh. The ruling on the witr prayer. Some of the scholars do get to the level where they almost say it is fard. Some of the scholars in their books of fiqh almost get to the level of saying it's fard. But the majority have said it is sunnah mu'akkada. You can't say it's at the level of fard because then you'll end up with six fard prayers in the day and we know by all of the rest of the religion there are only five. So this is sunnah mu'akkada at the highest level. You really, really should pray. And you shouldn't be missing witr. But if somebody did miss it on the odd night or something happened, you can't say they're a sinner for it. It's not an obligation like that. But something that you really shouldn't miss. Huh? Does it mean it's wajib? If you're studying the Hanafi madhab, that's what they'll say. And some of the other scholars, they'll say it is wajib. But that's upon the differences in definition of what a wajib is. Some scholars say a wajib is different to fard. But that's a much more detailed discussion. You're going too far ahead for our classes here. That's inshallah in a few years. Last one then, what would you advise someone who struggles with his iman? Because of this, he struggles or becomes lazy in prayer. A person struggling with iman, the scholars have mentioned there are certain things that help to increase your iman. The biggest thing the scholars always say helps you to increase your iman is seeking knowledge of your religion. The more you learn about Islam, the more you learn about the Qur'an, what Allah has said in it, and that even if you think about it, how many people know the whole Qur'an and what is in it? Chapters and chapters, many people haven't got a clue what's in there. Learn about what's in the Qur'an and what Allah has mentioned in the Qur'an. Learn about the Sunnah Bukhari, thousands of hadith. How many of them have you known or know about? Maybe 10 or 20 or 50. And there's thousands in Bukhari. So learning the sunnah, the more you do of that, the more your iman increases. Having the company of the righteous people, coming and attending the gatherings of knowledge, forcing yourself to come and be here. Even if the shaitan is whispering and making you lazy, because when you come and attend, and you hear the hadith and you hear the ayat, that will impact upon the increase in your iman. Seeking forgiveness from Allah regularly and constantly knowing that the Prophet ﷺ used to do the exact same. Your worship, striving to do what you can, because the Prophet ﷺ, he used to pray the night prayer so much that his ankles would become swollen. Aisha radiallahu anha said to him, why do you pray so much? Your sins have been forgiven anyway. He said, should I not be grateful to Allah then? Should I not be a grateful servant to Allah? So being grateful necessitates worship, necessitates ibadah, returning to Allah, seeking forgiveness for your sins. So no doubt we experience iman going up and going down. Iman going up and going down, that is something which occurs. 
But when a person is going through a patch, when his iman is down, you need to force yourself to take the steps which will increase it. Attending the gatherings of knowledge, attending the congregational prayer, doing these things, whether you know it or not, it will impact upon increasing your iman. Dropping sins, dropping your sins and the evil behaviors. A person needs to remember his focus in this world and what he was created for. And everything he does is recorded and registered. So no doubt this occurs, iman decreases, but studying, learning, asking Allah to aid you, making dua constantly, this is something good. And others who notice that somebody is weak in their iman, then you can do that for them too. Make dua for them too. Make dua for that person that Allah increases him in iman, Allah strengthens him again. So these are all beneficial things. We'll conclude upon that for today. Then it's the time for the prayer. Insha'Allah ta'ala. Uh, we'll meet in two weeks' time. Uh, insha'Allah. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.